hello hello what's going on here then this is christopher snowden um this is the swift half with snowden thanks for tuning in so th thanks so much for tuning in um delighted to have your company i don't think you'll regret clicking on whatever link you clicked on to get here uh because we're going to talk today particularly about the most pressing pressing issue facing the country and that party no inflation um, with a former colleague of mine, a very respected independent economist and former chief economist at the IEA, Julian Jessup. Hi, Julian. Hi there. Hi, everybody. Okay. As I say, I want to talk to you about inflation. Now, I am um, I'm one of the apparently few people, a tiny mm. band of monetarists, uh, we described it as in the uh, Telegraph recently, who did see this coming. And I have actually, for the last 18 months or so, been cutting out bits of newspaper. <laughs> this is rather petty. I don't know why I thought I was going to do with it, but it was more to remind me of the timeline of this. So David Smith in the Sunday Times, who I'm actually a big fan of, I think he's one of the best um, economic writers out there. Um, he is, he didn't really nail his colours to the mast, and in a way I was a bit surprised he didn't, and didn't say, you know, at least a year ago we have got some serious inflation down the line but if you look at the headlines from some of these articles i've been clipping out over the course of the last actually only the last year first ones from may 2021 we've got growth is back and so is the great debate about inflation um and he says that businesses are warning that they've you know be facing a lot of cost rises uh however he says most economists in contrast are relaxed about inflation but not all economists. Uh, Tim Congdon and his fellow monetarists think it is heading noticeably higher. Then we get to uh, a few months later, there's a real risk that the inflation cat is out of the bag. Get to what must be October, a scary Halloween story on interest, uh, in inflation and interest rates. Uh, November, the bank may simply be a bystander as inflation rips. And then much more recently, rampant inflation, that's <laughs> the bank's hawks take flight um so my first question is why did so few people see mm. this coming because it seems to me that you know when you've got um a, a central bank printing huge amounts of money even people who've never studied economics can tell you that that is likely to lead into to inflation yeah I've, I've been struggling to understand why people miss this as well um i think there are basically two explanations first of all um, it's sometimes even easier to explain inflation in terms of whichever prices happen to be going up the most. So people can say quite easily, well, inflation's high because there's a, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has pushed up energy prices or, or wheat prices, or, you know, people can point to other particular prices that are going up. And um, I think that's quite an easy thing for, for people to, to understand. Um, I think also monetarism, if I can put it like this, is, isn't, isn't very trendy. Um, I think a lot of the people that would call themselves monetarists would probably admit this, you know, not sort of, you know, progressive lefties and so on. They tend to be a bit old school. Um, often they're associated with the policies of previous unpopular leaders like, like Margaret Thatcher. So uh, when people you know, stick their hands up and say, I'm, I'm taking a monetarist perspective on that, it takes a, carries an awful lot of, of baggage with it. Um, even amongst the economics community, I think monetarism has fallen out of favour because even though, the basic ideas are quite simple. Some of it is quite complicated in practice. You, you may have heard this sort of identity, of it, as it's called, which is MV equals PT. So the amount of money times the velocity of circulation uh, equals the average price level in the economy times the number of transactions. So um, that sounds simple enough, but 
there are lots of question marks, for example, about what happens to the velocity of circulation of money. So it might be that you can print loads of money, but if that sticks in people's bank accounts, as it, as it did in the wake of the global financial crisis, that doesn't necessarily lead to inflation. So even at a technical economic level, there are some reasons here to, to be a little bit skeptical of simple monetarist approaches. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is an ideal test case. You know, what happens when central banks continue to pump in huge amounts of basically free money into economies that are recovering quite strongly and already running into supply constraints. The result has been inflation. Um, you know, with hindsight, I think most people recognize that's what's happened. And as you say, actually, there are quite a few people who a year ago were warning that this is exactly what the outcome was likely to be. Yeah, I mean, you say most people recognize that that's what happened. I mean, there's a good article in the in the Telegraph um, by Ambrose Evans Pritchard titled The Monetarists Were Right About Inflation, But Now They Have a Very Different Warning. We'll come on to what that warning is. Um, in a bit. But actually, if you read a lot of the articles in the BBC about it, they don't mention the, the you know, quantitative easing or money printing at all. They just say this is basically the result of rather vaguely, they say, you know, the, the, the pandemic and, and the war, because inflation was going up well before the, um, yeah. the war. Do these people who think it's just oil and gas, gas prices, do they think that it, when oil and gas prices go back to normal, there'll be deflation? Well, it's hard Presumably to say. I, I know what you mean. I, I share your frustration whenever I see an explainer, particularly from the BBC, but for, for many of the so-called mainstream media channels, I get frustrated that they, they say the obvious things, you know, prices are going up because energy prices are going up. Um, whereas if there was no growth in the money supply, it may well be that energy prices go up, but other prices would fall to offset that. So it's not just enough to focus on the individual prices that are rising the most. You need to explain why the overall level of inflation is higher. And that's where you need to, to fall back on the on the money supply. Um, I think amongst the better economic journalists, the, the, there is a recognition that this is something to do with monetary policy as well. And obviously the, the Bank of England and other central banks have got a lot of criticism recently for you know, having kept interest rates too low. Um, that The criticism isn't necessarily couched in terms of what they did to the money supply, but there is at least a recognition that you know, monetary policy has been too loose for too long and that central banks therefore have a lot of catching up to do. They, you know, they've lost credibility. They've you know, fallen behind the curve in the, in the market jargon and they need to catch up. Now, not everybody is expressing that in, in monetarist terms, um, but at least people are recognising that part of the reason why inflation is so high is because central banks kept interest rates too low last year and also continue to pump in money into economies even well beyond whenever it was needed. One of my favourite sayings about inflation is that printing money doesn't create inflation. Printing too much money creates inflation. Uh, do, do you agree with that? And can you explain to our viewers what it means? Well, that's right. If you, if you think about the a fixed amount of money in the economy and imagine that there's a, there's a supply shock. So, you know, we get a drought and there's, you know, not as many potatoes as there otherwise have been. Obviously the price of potatoes would go up, um, but if there's a fixed amount of money in the economy, then, you know, people will have to have less money to spend on other goods and services. So the prices of, of other things will go down. So um, unless central banks um, accommodate some sort of shock by printing more money, all that shock is going to do is change relative prices. So in my example, you know, potatoes become more expensive, but you know, people spend less on something else, whatever else that might be. So in order to get a prolonged period of higher inflation, it's not just enough that some particular prices rise. You also need central banks to accommodate that by providing the additional money 
that allows prices to rise across the board. And that, as I say, is very much what we what we've been seeing. The the question is, could the, the central banks have have done anything more about this sooner? I think they they definitely could in in two ways. Um, one is you know, directly through you know, the settings of monetary policy. If if interest rates have been higher, but in particular, if monetary growth had been slowed sooner, that would have reduced the amount of uh, inflationary pressure in the economy. But also, um, credibility and expectations are, are really important here. Even in a even in a monetarist model, you know, if you believe that an injection of money from a central bank is is going to be permanent, and the central bank isn't that bothered about inflation, then that's far more likely to lead to inflation now than if you think that injection of additional money is only temporary. So the sort of dovish signals that central banks have been sending over the last year or so about inflation just being temporary or something they can do nothing about, I think have actually contributed to the inflation problem on top of the fact that they themselves are printing all this extra money and chucking it into the economy. Playing devil's advocate a little bit, but also because I'm not quite sure about this myself. Um, is it not true to say that the you know, monetarism is... Um, less solid as a theory today than it was in 1980, partly because the government has less control over how much money is in circulation. I'm thinking here particularly about you know, credit cards and the amount of debt and fractional reserve banking. Is that a fair comment or not? Well, I think certainly, if I go back to that equation I mentioned earlier, so MV equals PT, um, Central banks can largely control M, the, the amount of money in the economy. So even if the, the money being created by the private sector fluctuates, uh, the amount of money created by central banks can fluctuate to offset that. So the overall amount of money in the economy is still something that central banks by large control. Um, what they can't control is some of the other elements, particularly V, the, the velocity of, of circulation. Um, so they can inject enormous amounts of money in the economy, but if it simply stays in people's bank accounts, then it's not going to be inflationary. Um, and that relationship between the amount of money and the velocity of circulation it is very uncertain. That's one of the reasons why sort of naive rules that monetarists used to believe in, like targeting a particular growth rate of sterling M3 or whatever else might be, tended to break down because there's a missing link in the chain, which is what happens to the velocity of circulation. So it's not quite as simple as saying that if banks control the money supply, they can control inflation. Um, but over the longer run, then there is clearly a link between the amount of money in the economy and, and the level of, of prices. And we, we've seen that obviously demonstrated over the last couple of years, but in any other set of examples you like to choose from history where there has been very high inflation, it's always been accompanied by very rapid growth of the of the money supply. So um, even if you know, some of the details are, are hard to nail down, I think there's no doubt that the amount of money in the economy is probably the single most important factor in determining the price level and therefore changes in the two uh, explain what's happening to inflation as well. Yeah, that's a very good point about the velocity of money. And you know, in a way, monetarism took a bit of a hit after the financial crisis because a lot of monetarists, including people like Tim Congdon, mm. were predicting a high inflation. I think Andrew Lillico lost a bet, actually, to Jonathan mm. Portes uh, on this. And it was, as you say, because the money was just being put into the you know, into banks to you know balance the books or people were just keeping it because um, they were nervous about spending it. And I mean, we still got 5% inflation actually over that, that, mm. that period after the financial crisis. People forget it. It did go well above 2% for a while, but obviously not, not to the kind of levels we're seeing now, certainly not hyperinflation. Mm. 
But as you say, there's some very important differences between now and the, the wake of the global financial crisis. In one, one is actually the sheer scale of, of quantitative easing or money printing that's taken place. You know, it's an order of magnitude more this time around than it was in the wake of the global financial crisis. Um, also, of course, in the wake of the global financial crisis, the, the financial system was completely dysfunctional. A lot of the money just stayed within the financial system when it was injected. This time around, it's very different because the, mum, the money is being you know, thrust into the economy directly by the government because, you know, of course, the government has been spending enormous amounts of money during the pandemic or, or giving it to businesses and to, to households to, to keep themselves going. So the, the transmission mechanism between this money printing and feeding into the economy has, has been far greater. Uh, and you can see that in sort of real world equivalent as well. Um, even though monetary growth is slowing, there's still a big overhang of, uh, of excess money in the economy. And a lot of that actually shows up in, in household savings. You know, in aggregate, the household sector has built up huge savings during the pandemic. Now, obviously, I'm careful to say in aggregate because that doesn't apply to a lot of the very low income households who are struggling the most with their fuel bills. But you know, there is a lot of potential spending power in the economy still as a result of all that money printing over the last couple of years. That's very true. Um... Going back just to this article, I'd say for viewers, if you want to find it, I think it might be behind a paywall, but if you've got access to the Telegraph, it's called The Monetarist Write About Inflation, but now they have a very different warning by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. You've got a, or you helped him out here with a, with a graph, which in a way is quite encouraging for the, mm. um, the, the outlook of this, because it suggests perhaps inflation might be coming down quite soon. And this shows, well, you, you explain what it shows. Okay, well, it, it basically it's got two lines on it. Um, one is the, the growth of the, the broad money supply uh, in the UK. For the, for the nerds amongst you, it's sterling M4X. Don't worry too much what that is. I mean, that's the sort of broadest measure of the amount of, uh, of money uh, that the, the central banks have created and is circulating through the financial system. Broad money. Uh, sorry? A broad money. Yeah, broad money, exactly. Can you explain, broad... can you explain what broad money and narrow money is? Sure, I know it's a okay. Bit, um, a bit loose definitions, but... Yeah, okay. If you, if you think about uh, what money means, I mean, sort of a very narrow definition of money might be something like, you know, the, the amount of notes and coins in circulation or, or bank deposits. That would be a definition of narrow money. Um, but of course, it, in practice, most people, you know, don't buy things using um, notes and coins or, or even necessarily, you know, their debit cards. They, they tend to use various forms of credit. So broad money includes various forms of, of, of credit and longer term deposits um, that people have in their, in their bank accounts or, or other forms of credit and, and lending throughout the economy. So it's a sort of broader measure of money that reflects the sort of way that the modern financial system works. Um, so that that's broad money. And so one of the lines in my chart is the is the growth rate of broad money, you know, the amount of money that that is available to to spend. Uh, and the other line in my chart is the is the inflation rate. Um, and I basically plot the two against each other. Now, I do a little bit of a trick. Um, what I do is I um, I put a lag in. What I do is I, I, I advance the money supply numbers by 18 months. So. Uh, basically, I'm assuming that there's, a, there's an 18 month lag between all this money being injected into the economy and then it finally feeding through into to stronger growth and, and higher prices. Now, um, that's a little bit of a, a fix. Um, there's no particularly strong empirical or, or theoretical reason for assuming there's an 18 month lag. Um, the reason I've gone for it, though, is, is it does seem to work extremely well, not just in the UK, but in a number of other economies as well. Um, so the, the in this particular in instance or in the past? 
Um, in the past as well, you know, I've got right. longer versions of this chart, but you know, they, they get a bit more complicated the longer longer you go back. Um, what it basically is suggesting is that you know, the surge in monetary growth a year, a year and a half ago, explains the current high level of inflation. But equally, since over the last six months or so in particular, monetary growth has slowed quite sharply. That suggests that inflation, consumer price inflation, is also going to slow quite sharply um, over the next year or so. Um, and on the basis of my chart, um, inflation is probably going to peak around about 10%, as, as people expect, but then fall back towards maybe 3% by the, by the middle of next year. Now, as I say, this chart is more sort of a you know, teaching device or something to provoke conversation rather than something I'd want to die in a ditch to, to defend. But I think it does illustrate the point very well. Um, and I've been looking at other countries as well. I've, there's been a lot of discussion recently about why inflation is still so low in countries like Switzerland and, and Japan. I think actually in both countries, inflation there was only 2.5% in April. Now, there are a lot of particular local factors in both of those countries, but the one thing they've got in common is that they see much lower rates of growth of their broad money supply. And again, if I draw similar charts for them, I get a similar story, that the pickup inflation that they've seen is consistent with the pickup in monetary growth they had a little bit earlier. But equally, they, their inflation rates should drop back probably towards zero over the next year or two as well. So that doesn't sound too bad, uh, peaking at 10%, coming down 3% sometime uh, next year, uh, fairly early on. What's the what's the dark warning that um, is mentioned in this article? Then Mon monetarists are, are, are smug about being right, but they're concerned mm -hmm. about the future. Well, I think there are there are two things to be concerned about. And first of all, the the point flagged up in the the Telegraph article. I know that Tim Congdon and others are very concerned about this. Is the possibility that monetary growth might not actually be too weak? You know, obviously the the rapid growth of money supply over the last year or so has has supported economic growth. I mean, unfortunately, it's also ended up boosting inflation, but you know, it has prevented a, you know, an even deeper recession than we would otherwise have got. But with monetary growth now showing slowing very sharply and potentially even turning negative, uh, there is a risk that, yes, inflation comes back under control, but the economies get tipped back into, into a deep recession. So that, that's one concern. Um, there's also a concern that, you know, even though monetary growth is slowing, you've still got this huge excess amount of money in the economy as a result of, you know, a year or two of double-digit growth. So we could still have a lot more inflation in the pipeline. Um, you know, people start to, to spend that money again, then we could still have a prolonged period of, of high inflation. So there's various combinations here of you know, high inflation and, and, and weak growth. But uh, I'm sort of hoping there's a Goldilocks scenario where we do get a soft landing on inflation and the economy avoids the recession. But there's clearly a very big risk, even if you're looking at this from a monetary perspective, that you know, the, the slowdown in monetary growth might actually go too far. And we end up with a combination of high inflation then actually an outright recession. That is very interesting. Um, let's just, just backtrack a little bit. So with how much monetary growth have we actually had, roughly speaking, in the last year? And what's what's the Bank of England printing at the moment? Or is it you, you said it might even go negative? Are they thinking of hmm. um, taking money out of circulation? Right. Well, over the last couple of years, we've, we've had more than well, double digit growth in the amount of money in the economy. So the broad money supply has, has been growing. I think the, the peak rate of growth was something like 18% uh, year on year. So that's, that's a big expansion in the amount of money. Um, and the, the Bank of England itself is being hunt by buying hundreds of billions of pounds worth of government bonds uh, using newly created money. Basically, it's just 
made up the numbers and credited the accounts of uh, commercial banks at the central bank um, and used that money to, to buy bonds from them. So uh, we've had hundreds of billions of pounds of newly created central bank money injected into the into the economy. Now that that process has now stopped. Um, so what is called quantitative easing, the, the buying of bonds using newly created money has now ended. Um, the process of what's called quantitative tightening has, has just begun. Um, there are two stages to this. There's sort of what's known as passive quantitative tightening. So um, what that means is that the government, the central bank has bought loads of bonds from the government. When those bonds naturally mature, um, the, the Bank of England is, is basically just letting them run off the books rather than replacing them. So that's reducing the amount of government bonds that the central bank holds, and it's a sort of form of passive quantitative tightening. And that is slowing the, the, the growth of money supply a little bit. The next big stage, though, is now what's known as active quantitative tightening. And that's when the bank starts um, selling bonds that it holds on its books. So that is you know, going to drain money out of the economy because you know, it sells the bonds to people in the private sector. They give the cash to the bank and then the, the, the bank basically keeps it on their own books rather than uh, allowing it to float around the economy. Um, that process hasn't yet started in the UK, but it probably will in the in the autumn. Um, other central banks are... Uh, you know, looking at quantitative tightening as well, including the uh, the Fed in the US, they're going to be starting their process pretty soon. Um, so that will start to withdraw some of the stimulus, but they're only going to move slowly. It's just the same story on interest rates. They are raising interest rates, but they're still historically very, very low. So we're going to see, I almost think of it more like the, the central banks taking the foot off the accelerator rather than slamming it on the brakes. Um, but certainly some of the huge stimulus we've seen over the last couple of years will gradually be withdrawn. Okay, so a couple of things I want to ask about that. Um, I'll get against interest rates in, in, a, in a second. Firstly, the government's planning on borrowing at least £100 billion this year. I mean, probably be much more than that because Rishi Sunak seems to be coming up with some new uh, £10 billion package, I think on top of a £9 billion package. So it's going to be a lot of money. The government, therefore, because there's no more QE, it's going to have to borrow from somebody else. Who's it going to borrow from and how, how are the rates looking for, for those loans? Hmm. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the, the programme of quantitative easing over the last year or so at the Bank of England has basically covered all the financing needs of the, of the government. So the government hasn't really had to tap the, the private sector uh, in order to, uh, to fund its, its spending programmes over and above the revenues it's getting from taxation. So um, the government's had a fairly easy ride over the last couple of years. It's now going to be much harder because it's actually got to sell that debt to the, to the private sector. Um, that said, I don't think that's going to be too difficult to, to do. Um, in a world where you know, global growth is, is weak, there's actually going to be quite a lot of excess private sector savings looking for a, for a safe home. You know, equity markets are looking pretty stretched at the moment. Um, you know, commodity prices have, have probably peaked. And so, so government bonds might be a reasonably attractive investment. Um, even what, at, what kind of interest rates can we offer them? Bear in mind, inflation's going to 10%. People are going to want more than, you know, the measly kind of rates that we've been traditionally giving them for the last 20 years. True. I mean, it's a mystery, actually, why government bond yields are still so low, despite well, what's happening to the, the current level of inflation. So, you know, most governments can still borrow at somewhere between 1% and 25 um, to 3% over a 10-year period, um, even though inflation's going to be far higher than that. Um, but there are still plenty of people who do want 
the safe haven of, of, of government bonds. There are lots of you know, longer term investors who actually have very little choice other than to, to buy government bonds. So a lot of insurance firms and pension funds and so on do it's need financial to Financial repression, isn't it, basically? Yeah, that, that's one way of looking at it. They're effectively obliged to buy them because they've got to put their money somewhere and they're, they're, they're not necessarily any alternative. And um, because of the way that the, the rules apply to a lot of these institutions, um, holding government bonds is considered by the regulators to be a very safe thing to do, um, even though, you know, you and I know that the, the returns you get are going to be, you know, negative in, in real terms, at least you're not going to lose your money because you're always going to get paid back by, by the government in some form or another, which isn't necessarily the case for an equity investment. So there's various reasons why uh, lots of institutions will still want to hold government bonds, even though they, they're expected to make a, a negative real rate of return on them, because at least you know, the, the, the nominal value of the capital is safe. Um, so interest rates will probably remain low. Um, if they do rise, um, I don't actually necessarily see that as a bad thing. It depends why they're rising. If they're rising because economies are stronger um, and there's more demand from you know, competing uses in the private sector, uh, for capital and therefore the government has to pay a bit more as well. I think that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, I also think it, it's good sometimes that governments get a bit of a reminder that they can't take you know, cheap money for granted, that they, you know, they uh, there is a danger that governments always believe they can borrow at very low interest rates, then you know, that one of the obvious constraints on profligate governments that have been taken away. So if the government ends up paying a bit more on its debt, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing either for that reason. Might teach them a lesson, perhaps. I wonder. I wonder. But let's talk about the Bank of England interest rates. Obviously, if, apart from tightening the money supply, the the obvious thing the Bank of England does what to deal with inflation and try and keep its its promise of keeping it around two percent is putting interest rates up, and it hasn't really. I mean, one 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 percent interest rate going up against a nine percent inflation rate is a joke, right? I mean, I think last time yeah. inflation rates were anything like this in the early nineties, interest rates were fifteen percent. Yeah. But it's I think a, it's a, yeah, I think it's a complete waste of time what they're doing on interest rates. I mean, they, they, um, they're doing no more than is expected by the market, so it's not really surprising anybody. In, interest rates are, you know, frankly, so low that um, a quarter point change um, every meeting really makes no difference at all. So it has no real economic impact and it has no signalling effect either. Um, if I were sitting on the Monetary Policy Committee, I, I would actually be a lot bolder. I think. Uh, you know, a much bigger increase now would at least send a clear signal to everybody in the economy that you're serious about getting inflation back down over the over the medium to, to longer term. And if you can control expectations of inflation and restore credibility, um, then I think actually that will help to lower inflation now as well. Um, you know, if people think inflation is only going to be temporary, then they're more likely to absorb uh, what might only be temporary cost increases in their margins rather than pass them on to consumers. So um, I think by influencing expectations, there is something that bankers can do about inflation, both now, but also in the future. Uh, so why and I think why bank... don't you think they're doing that? I mean, I have my theory. Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons. I think it's just, you know, timidity. Um, a lot of group think, particularly in the, in the Bank of England. Interesting, not all central banks are looking at it this way. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Reserve Bank of, of New Zealand, which actually is, is one of the world's best central banks. And it was one of the first, for example, to adopt a credible regime for inflation targeting. And um, in the last 24 hours, they've, they've raised rates by half a point, uh, second time running. They've got interest rates up to, up to 2% already. Um, and I think that, that approach is 
is far more credible, you know, sending a, a clear, strong signal. Um, in the UK, possibly a few reasons that might justify a bit more caution. I think the fact that we're about the only major country where taxes are actually going up uh, might make central banks more cautious. They might think that you know part of the job of slowing the economy is being done by taxes going up rather than interest rates going up. Um, I don't personally think that's the right way of looking at it. I think that, that inflation ultimately is all about monetary policy and everything else is a distant second place behind that. So no, banks should worry about the settings of monetary policy, not other policy variables in the economy. But that might be holding back some people at the bank. But I think the big problem, as I say, is 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 groupthink. Um, you know, everybody at the bank thing at the moment seems to come from the same sort of old school, uh, you know, Keynesian output gap type approaches where monetary variables don't really matter, where signaling's not terribly important. Indeed, the, the governor of the Bank of England seems to be going out of his way to say that there's nothing the Bank of England can do about inflation anyway, which sort of rather begs the question, why are we paying you so much money? So um, I think it's, it's a combination of things. There are a few particular reasons in the UK why we might be slower to raise interest rates in other countries. But I think at the end of the day, it's a failure of, of thinking at the Bank of England and, and missing out those sort of monetary factors and the importance of expectations. I think it's because there's a huge number of people who can't remember what interest, rate, interest rates are like, normal interest rates, and gone out and bought a house. And if they go up to normal levels, they won't be able to pay the mortgage or they're going to really struggle to pay the mortgage. And then that's going to tip the economy into recession. Well, it's partly a timing effect because actually, well, two points. One is that most people have now, of course, have a some form of sort of fixed rate mortgage. So um, it will take some time before increases in official interest rates feed through into the, the mortgage payments that the people are actually making. Um, I also think you know, most people, of course, who've, who've who own a house at the moment um, would have seen quite you know chunky increases in the in the value of that house over over the last few years. And hopefully many of them also seeing you know, a bit of a pickup in the the wages and or other income that they're earning as well. So um, if you look at what's happening to interest rates, yes, interest rates will be higher, but then they might still be able to finance that reasonably well from higher incomes uh, or even from remortgaging against the high value of their property. So um, I don't think small increases in interest rates will be enough to tip the economy into recession. But I agree that is another thing that the central bank will be worried about. Uh, and you know what I just said probably doesn't apply to at least some people who are struggling not just with um, energy and, and uh, food bills, but also might be facing higher mortgage costs as well. Julian, a half hour is up already. I can't believe how quickly it's gone. It's always a good sign of a good episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you at home for tuning in. If you want to support us at the IEA, you know you can do that by going to iea.org.uk slash donate or to the Patreon, patreon.com slash IEA london um you know, tune in again in two weeks time and we'll have another great guest take care until then thank you and goodbye thank you well if you enjoyed that conversation why not watch one of these other videos and while you're here remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell that way you'll never miss out on a single iea broadcast